0: I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. We've been teaching for the last, uh, well, a couple of months, I guess, on um, uh, a series that we've been titled, The Name of Jesus. And uh, uh, we've been looking at some scriptures each time in John 14, 15, and 16. And we want to continue to do that this morning. I want to continue with this series, but I'll try to make it a little bit Christmassy for you. Don't worry. Um, John writes this letter... To the church at the end of his life, uh, the end of John's life, some 60 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so he's had plenty of time to think things over and, and recall certain things that Jesus said and events and uh, occurrences that, that took place while he was walking with Jesus here on the earth. And he fills in some of the blanks um, or gives us some information that the other gospel writers don't give us. And uh, uh, some of that uh, information that seems to be the most important or, or interesting to me is uh, what he told us about the last night that Jesus was with them. And uh, this is what's known, of, known as the Last Supper. And Jesus uh, in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John's Gospel, this letter that he wrote back to the church. And of course John has read and is familiar with the other Gospels that are out there so he knows what everybody else has said. And so he comes in kind of after the fact and, and uh, gives us further information. Uh, I believe that the, it um, uh, is significant that John did it at the end of his life, as I said, some 60 years after Jesus was raised from the dead, because he's the last one that's on the earth that was with Jesus, and knew Jesus personally, and that walked with him here on the earth. And so the Holy Ghost has given us one last uh, parting letter, I guess, to, uh, to let us know some of these things. John chapter 14, 15 and 16, the whole theme of this is Jesus is going to the Father. Jesus starts off in the 14th chapter and says, Don't be, let not your heart be troubled because I'm going to the Father. I'm going to make a place for you and so forth. Everything is about what's going to be because he's going to the Father. Now, let's pick up reading in verse um, 12, of John chapter 14. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, or believeth on my name, it's one and the same, The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now notice he didn't say because you're apostles you'll do greater works. The same works are greater works. He said that it belongs to anybody that believes on his name or believes on him. Verse 13, it tells how those works are going to be done. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now the word ask, I'm... uh, I'm not sure that that it's really a poor translation, I don't want to go that far as to say that, but most of the time when people see the word ask in the New Testament they, they think it's talking about a request, and this word does not mean to request, it does not mean to pray. The word ask that's used here literally means to call for, require, or demand. He's talking about what you say, not what you request, he's talking about what you say. So he says, he that believeth on me the works that I do shall he do also, because I'm going to the Father. That's the theme of everything because I'm going to the Father, because I'm going to the cross, in just a matter of a few hours, I'm making a place for you, and therefore, because of that place that I make for you, the works that I do, shall you do also, and even greater works than these, shall you do, and whatsoever you shall ask, or call for, require, demand, literally speak, in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he he shows how uh, expansive this, Statement is, he said, if you shall speak anything in my name, I will do it. Now, one of the things that we've talked about uh, extensively throughout this series, and I want to mention it again, is it seems that from... Uh, uh, and, and we get the wrong idea about the use of the name of Jesus in most cases. At least it seems that way to me. And, uh, and part of the reason that we get that is we have uh, uh, certain uh, Bible stories, like in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John are going to the gate at the... Uh, going through the beautiful gate of the temple at the hour of prayer and they see the crippled man and they uh, the crippled man expected to to get some money from him and Peter and John said, uh, such as I have, look on us, such as I have, uh, give I thee in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. We look at the use of the name of Jesus as being an event. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about there's a use or a place in his name because he's going to the Father. Now if the name of Jesus was just an event then he would have had to have qualified this. He would have had to have said, now there will be times where those that believe on my name will do the same works as me. And sometimes even greater works. But he didn't. He used it as an all-inclusive term. And as a matter of fact, verse 14 shows how inclusive it is. He said, if you'll speak anything in my name, I'll do it. Now that would have to mean if you speak anything in my name, what, on special occasions? If you speak anything in my name when there's a special move of God on? If you speak anything in my name when the Holy Ghost is really moving upon you or or doing some kind of miracle work in and of himself, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a place. He's talking about a position. See, the Bible goes on to say in the New Testament, one uh, example that we use, we could use many others and have, but one example is, Paul said, whatsoever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. Well, I don't know about you, but I do a lot of things that don't seem to fit with the name of Jesus. I mean, I don't drive my car in the name of Jesus as a normal activity. It's thinking of it in the use of, of a, a one-time event. I don't get in my car, start it up and say, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to drive. Do you? I don't conduct business affairs in the name of Jesus in that sense. Well, then if he's talking about doing everything in the name of Jesus, he's got to be talking about a place in the name of Jesus because we've made him the Lord of our lives and not just single or special events where we call out His name, right? We've even gone further into the New Testament into the book of Acts, and we've seen a lot of miracles that were done and the name of Jesus was never mentioned. Well, how is that possible? I thought Jesus said that the miracle works would be done in His name. Well, if the use of His name means a special event, then they did things apart from the way Jesus is instructing for them to be done. But if it means because you're in me... If Jesus is saying, because of the place that I'm going to create for you in my Father, you being in me, or what the Bible talks about being in Christ, meaning born again because we confess Him as our Lord and Savior, then that position gives us a right to all the miracle working power of God, not because of some magic phrase that we say in the name of Jesus, but because we're in Him, and that's where we live and move and have our being. Amen? Amen. Chapter 15, verse 7. John goes on to tell us more about this. Jesus is speaking. He said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Notice he's talking about two things. He's talking about uh, relationship and he's talking about fellowship. Relationship by abiding in him. Fellowship is through the word. We could say it this way. He's talking about relationship and walking by faith. See, you can't be in fellowship with God unless you're walking by faith. Because the only way you can fellowship with God is through his Word. You can't fellowship with God apart from His Word. That's why so many Christians are in the world today and they feel like God is a million miles away because they're not fellowshipping with Him through His Word. They don't accept the Word of God as truth. They're living their lives the way everybody else does or the way they think or whatever, whatever standard they choose and operate by. And it doesn't bring them a sense of God's presence upon them even though He lives on the inside of them because he's conf- they've confessed Him as their, as his, as their Lord and Savior. Fellowship with God comes to His Word. You remember what Peter said when Jesus told him he was going to the cross? He said, not so, Lord. Well, this gives you an example of what fellowship is like. Jesus turned around and said, get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, you reject the Word, you're not in fellowship with God. That didn't mean Peter was going to hell. It didn't mean he couldn't be a disciple anymore. It just meant he was operating by the, by the influence of the enemy. So there is only one way to fellowship with God and that is through His Word. So if you abide in Me and My words abide in you, that means you are going to be in fellowship with Him by walking in faith, not by sight. And notice what Jesus said if you do that. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you shall ask what you will. Notice there is not one mention made of God's will. You shall ask what you will. This word ask is the same word we saw before. Call for require demand, literally speak. He's not talking about requesting. He's not talking about prayer. Whatsoever you shall say, speak. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall speak what you will and it shall be done unto you. It might be done. No, it shall be done. He's talking about a place in him. He's talking about privileges, rights. He's talking about authority that we have because of the work that he did on the cross. Verse 8, herein, in other words, in you being able to speak, because you're in fellowship with God and in right relationship with Him, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Now, what fruit is he talking about? You getting the results of what you say. That's the fruit that he's referring to. And notice that glorifies God. It's a, it's a funny thing to me that so many people out there are saying, oh, those, those confession people, those word of faith people, they're the name it and claim it bunch. They're out there acting like they think they're God, just saying anything they want to say. Well, we're not trying to say anything we want to say. We're saying everything that's in line with walking in fellowship with God through His Word. But notice that that's what brings God glory. Notice that, according to Jesus, now, if Jesus knew what He's talking about, of course, He said, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. God is glorified when your words come to pass. Well, that's a new concept for the church, the modern-day church. Modern-day church wants to sit back and say, well, whatever God wants is the way it's going to be, and we never can tell what God's going to do. Well, if you know the Word, you always know what He'll do. Anytime you hear somebody saying, you never know what God's going to do, they're telling you right now, I don't know beans about God's Word. I'm sure they'd be blessed if you share that with them too. <laughs> Notice further on in John 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you. And a lot of times people look at that and they think He's talking about picking them as apostles. He's not talking about their ministry office. He's not talking about the place they have because of, of the call of God on their life. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about being in Christ. You know why? We know that because He says, You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you. To what end? that you would bring forth fruit. Now, could he possibly be talking about different fruit than he was just talking about in verse 8? If so, where did he change subjects? He didn't. He said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit. The fruit that comes by you getting your words, your words coming to pass in your own life. Notice he goes even further, and that your fruit should remain. God doesn't, it's not into temporary stuff. He likes permanent things. Now notice the next phrase, that whatsoever you shall ask, call for require demand. Speak to the Father in my name, he will give it you. So notice Jesus is saying, if you speak, I'll make it good. If you speak, the Father will give it to you. You've got supernatural ability working on both sides of the street here. Notice chapter 16, verse 23. Jesus said, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Now that word ask is a different word that is the word for pray it means request and so jesus is saying in that day the day of the resurrection the day that you and i live in he's saying you won't ask me you won't come to me you won't be making requests of me why won't we be making requests of jesus because he's making a place for us with the father because now we're going to have the same place with the father that he had when he was here on the earth now, and that's the prayer that he prays in John chapter 17, that we would be one with the Father as he is one with the Father. So he's saying, following the resurrection, you're not going to have to come through me. Now, we do come through him by making him the Lord of our lives. But he's saying, I'm not going to pray for you. He goes on further. Uh, let me bring this one up before we finish verse 23. Notice in verse 26, he said, In that day you shall ask in my name. This is the word speak, call for required demand. In that day you shall ask. In my name I say not unto you that I will pray. This is the same word for request that, that ask is translated in verse 23 the first time. He said, I'm not going to make requests of the Father for you because the Father himself loves you because you've loved me. And I believe that I've come out from God. In other words, God, you can speak to God directly and not come through me. That's what he's saying. So he says, and in that day, verse 23, and in that day you shall request nothing of me, But whatever you call for, require demand. Whatever you speak to the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Hitherto, up till now, have you asked, spoken nothing in my name, ask, speak, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Now we've said this several times, but let me take a moment and say it again. Is there any situation in your life that your joy is not full that could not be fixed by the power of God? Is it possible to have a situation in your life where your joy is not full that couldn't be fixed by the power of God? And notice the Bible is saying that we have a place of authority to access God's ability, His power, through our words. Why? Because Jesus went to the Father. Because Jesus went to the Father. Now we've looked at, and we won't go through it, uh, but just for a moment to, uh, to bring back to your recollection. We looked in the beginning in the book of Genesis where it says that God created the earth and put man in charge of it. He gave him authority on the earth. Adam lost some of that, some of his place with God by disobeying God, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But they didn't lose their authority. They opened the door to sin and death, the law of sin and death in the earth. But man still maintained his authority. We know that because even in the Old Testament, after the law of Moses was given and so forth, God said, uh, Behold, for example, Behold, I set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. If man didn't have authority, where is it, why, is he, why is God telling him to choose? If the devil has authority, if the devil, who is the God of this world now, under this world system, if the devil is the one that has all the authority, then why didn't God say, you better hope that the devil hadn't planned something bad for you? Because the authority is not in God's hands. God delivered the authority into man. So if the authority left man's hands in totality then man would have no opportunity to choose. And if man had no choice, there'd be no way for him to be saved. Jesus said about salvation, He said, whosoever will, let him come. In other words, it's your choice. It's my choice. It's not God's choice. God's not in heaven picking winners and losers. It's certainly not up to the devil, because if it was up to the devil, He's going to pick everybody to be a loser. And He's trying to enforce that in the world. The problem that He has is that you're the one that has the choice. So what does he do? He keeps mankind in the dark about his authority. He keeps mankind in the dark about his choice. He tries to hide from him the reality that it's your choice, not God's and not the devil's. Now in Genesis chapter 22 I'm going to remind you of something that happened when it came to Abraham's choice and that was uh, God instructed Abraham to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. Now as offering up that sacrifice God stopped him and and said because you've done this thing now I know that you won't withhold your only son. He's entering into a covenant relationship a new level of the covenant relationship with God that Abraham initiated. In other words Abraham took the first step and not God. Abraham offered God his only son so now God's obligated by terms of the covenant to offer his only son which was his plan from the beginning but it still took uh, uh, Abraham's. Cooperation. Now, Abraham didn't know what what he was doing. It just became a matter of obedience to God where Abraham was concerned. And the Bible says that Abraham believed in God to such a degree that it was necessary for God to raise his son from the dead. If he offered him up as a sacrifice, killed his son on the altar, God was able to raise him up from the dead. And the Bible says, even by faith he received him as such as risen from the dead in a figure. In other words, it was so real to him on the inside That it was a done deal as far as he was concerned. That's the kind of faith that he had. That's the kind of full full persuasion that he had developed in God from simply hearing His word. Now there's a there's an interesting thing because God says in Genesis chapter twenty two and verse seventeen, well I'll back up to verse sixteen. At uh, at the time that God is speaking to Abraham after he offered Isaac, God said, "By myself I have sworn." saith the Lord for because thou hast done this thing and has not withheld thy son thine only son verse 17 that in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies now there are three things that are part of this promise that God makes to Abraham the first two he's already promised him he's talked to him about several times before the third one is a new element of the promise It's added because of Abraham's obedience where offering Isaac was concerned. The first part of the promise was that in blessing I will bless thee. That's the promise that includes all the material blessings. It includes all the promised land stuff. It includes everything about God taking care of us here on the earth. It includes long life. It includes health for our bodies. It includes every part of the physical existence that we have here on the earth. That in blessing I will bless thee. These things are identified and broken down and specified in uh, Moses, com- uh, Moses' instruction to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy and so forth. But that's what he's talking about. That's the blessing of Abraham that's, con- that's considered, the blessing of the Jews. It's talking about all the material blessings, including physical health and so forth, here on the earth. The second part of the blessing is that I will multiply your seed as the sand on the seashore and so forth. He's talking about the progeny. He's talking about the the multiplication of the children, literal descendants of Abraham that will take place on the earth. The third part of the promise is something, as I said, is something new. God's never done that before. This is part that he adds in. And he said, And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now this seed that's being spoken of, Romans, the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, as well as his letter to the Galatians, identifies that the seed of Abraham was not the natural descendants is not the Jews. What well, we consider the Jews are Israel. The natural descendants are his physical seed, but the seed is a spiritual seed. The seed is Jesus. Paul goes to great lengths to talk about the promise being made to Abraham and his seed, not seeds, plural, but seed singular, meaning Jesus. So here it's talking certainly about Jesus and the, the conquest of the enemy through the death, burial, and resurrection that uh, he will endure where it says in your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies but this is also talking about you and me because Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 tells us and if you be Christ then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise see Jesus never did anything for himself now possessing the gate of your enemies is is as a an Old Testament term that literally means to have dominion if you possess the gate of your enemies that means you control his cities He's talking about conquest he's talking about you having authority so he's talking about the authority that will belong not only to Jesus who gains it through his defeat of Satan but he's talking about the provision that are made through Jesus because I go unto my father as Jesus said and that place of authority that belongs to us that place in Christ now I want you to look with me over to a couple of things let's let's turn to the Christmas story now a little bit look with me to Isaiah chapter 7 Isaiah chapter 7 tells us the story of God. um, uh, The the people of Syria rose up against Israel and God sends Isaiah to Ahaz the king and says, Go out against Syria. God's with us. This is what He wants us to do. And uh, and God says to him, says to to Isaiah, to tell Ahaz the king that um, uh, you can ask for a sign if you want to and I'll show you a sign to to show you that I'm really behind this. And Ahaz won't do it. Ahaz says, No, I'm not going to... I'm not going to ask for a sign. That would be tempting God. And God says, well, I'll give you a sign anyway. Now in verse uh, uh, verse 14, here's the sign that he gives him. He says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that had nothing to do with Israel defeating Syria. It had nothing to do with the, the situation at hand. But God de- declares what his plan and what his purpose is. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 tells us a story of how that the angel appears unto Mary to talk about this promise that God makes. We'll start reading in verse 26. And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, Thou that art highly favored the Lord is with thee blessed art thou among women And when she saw him she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be For the angel said unto her fear not Mary for thou hast found favor with God and behold thou shalt conceive in thy womb and shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end then said Mary unto the angel how shall this be seeing I know not a man she's thinking biology and the angel answered and said unto her the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee the Greek says like a cloud Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now I want you to notice a couple of things. Before we go any further, I want you to notice a couple of things. Notice the angel does not say, Isaiah prophesied this. The angel just shows up and says, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bear a son, and his name shall be Jesus. He will be born of God, his name shall be Jesus. Now she questions it, not out of doubt, just simple question, how can this possibly be? See, she's thinking naturally. She says, how can this be? I've never been with a man. I don't have a man. I'm, I'm engaged to a man, but I'm not married. How is this possible? And the angel explains that the Holy Ghost shall, come over the, shall overshadow thee like a cloud, and it, uh, this shall be born of thee. Now, notice what she, uh, the angel goes on to say in verse 36. He gives her a little bit of encouragement. He said, and behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. I want you to notice how even God realizes that testimonies will encourage people's faith. Now, with, for with God, verse 37, for with God nothing shall be impossible. The literal Greek said, God is able to make good his every declaration. I like that. God is able to make good his every declaration. And Mary said... Now, remember what we're talking about. We're talking about the place that we have with God and even the authority that man had under the old covenant. His words are what counted. His obedience to God, everything about the Old Testament, the keeping of the law, was a matter of obe- obedience because it's through obedience, either through word or action, that you make your choice. It's how you choose life over death, it's how they chose life over death under the old covenant. Confessing Jesus is the Lord of our lives is the way we choose life over death today. And so Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. I want you to notice this. Notice that even though God had prophesied this 750 years before, Isaiah was 750 years before Mary, even though it's been prophesied 750 years ahead of time, God still has to have her cooperation. She still has to agree to this. She still has to sign on, if you will, to God's Word in order for it to come to pass with her. Now, the word behold means to look. Notice there's two times that the word behold is used. It says, first of all, that the angel says in verse 31, "...and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus." Mary says in verse 38, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. The word behold means to look at, but anytime the word behold is used, it's talking about to give attention to or an intensity of looking at something because it's true. An intensity to look at something because it's true. It's more than just seeing something. It's really paying attention to it. We could say, for example, in... uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20, where God said, uh, My son, attend unto my word. That attention means to behold my words. To really give attention to it. To make sure to pay attention, search it out, because it's truth. Not just to casually glance at something. We can look around the room and say we saw the room, but we really didn't see it. We just kind of looked around. But the things that we study, the things we gaze at, the things that we focus our attention on, that's the kind of thing that he's talking about here. Now, down south we have a saying, and that saying is, look here. Now, you may be thinking, well, everybody says, look here. But in the south, with a southern accent and saying real fast, it sounds like, look here. Now, what you may not know is, behold, is the Greek word for, look at him. (laughs) And the angel says, look at him. You shall conceive, and a son shall be born of you, and that son shall be the Son of God. And Mary, after hearing the explanation, that's all she asked for, how? How? How can this be? She didn't say, whoa, wait a minute now. You don't understand. I'm not married yet. Come back and see me in about six months. She just asked how. How can this be? After she hears the explanation, she says, look at him. I'm your girl. She didn't have to be. God could have made His Word come to pass without Mary. The question is, is she going to be a part of God's plan? God wants her to be, but it's still up to her. And so she says, I'm your girl. Be it unto me, even as you will, or according to your word. Now the word behold is, in the, is used in the Scripture over 1,300 times. 1,326 Scriptures in the Bible contain the word behold. Now, let's take some time this morning and look at each one of these, okay? I was wondering if you'd laugh at that. Now, of course, we don't have time to go through all that. We really would be spending Christmas together if we did. But let me point out a couple of times where God does use it, some things that you're familiar with. For example, in Genesis... It says, after God creates man, He tells him, His instruction to man is, Behold, I've given you every tree, everything that the, that the earth produces, and so forth, for you to have dominion over. And then it it's not only speaks of from a narrative position, where God's speaking first person, but also it tells, uh, uses the word behold for the reader to be able to, to identify with. It says, concerning the creation, it says, God ceased put an end, made an end of all that he created, and behold, for the reader, not for God, but for the reader, behold, it was very good. Now, the word behold is used a lot in the book of Exodus. Um, God uses the word behold from the first person standpoint when he's talking to Moses to tell him what's going to happen. He he uses the the word behold uh, in in giving Moses instruction about what to say to Pharaoh. For example, he says to, to Moses, tell Pharaoh, behold, I told you to let my people go, but you would not. Now, behold, now God says first person, Moses tell him this, Behold, I will use my rod and turn the Nile into blood. He uses the word behold for most, if not all, uh, not quite all, but most of them, uh, of the different plagues that take place. Where Moses stands before Pharaoh and says, Behold, there shall be a, a, a plague that comes on your cattle. Behold, I will send hail mixed with fire and so forth. Again and again and again, God says, behold. He's saying to Moses to tell Pharaoh, look at what I'm telling you, because this is the way it's going to be. What I'm telling you is the truth, so look at what I'm saying. The word behold is used in other places throughout the Old Testament. A lot of times the prophets are using the word behold because they're making declarations of things that are going to happen many, many years, even hundreds of years in the future. Uh, For example, we just read one in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. That's the sign that God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to tell him, even though this doesn't make sense, even though you've never heard of anything like this, this is exactly the way that it's going to be. all because of the word, all because of the word. Now there's a couple of times where it's used in the New Testament, well, many times it's used in the New Testament that we could point out as well, but let me pick out a couple. For example, in Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Jesus said, Behold, I give unto you power, literally authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. It may not look to you like that's the way it is, but that's the truth. Behold, you have authority over the devil's power. Another place that's used when God appears, or Jesus appears to um, John on the Isle of Patmos in the beginning of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Jesus appears and says, uh, John falls down before uh, the Lord because he's got the flaming. eyes of fire and the white hair and jesus did not look like the way john remembered him here on the earth so he falls down before him recognizes that this is the work of god and jesus lays his hand on john and says don't be afraid because it's me he said i I am he that uh has to say I, i was dead and now i'm alive and behold i live forevermore whenever god uses the word behold it's like he's making a special emphasis you need to know that this is truth and it will always be true. I am alive forevermore. Now one other thing I want you to see in Luke chapter 1 before we leave that and that is notice it says in verse 31 and behold, look at him. Behold thou shalt conceive in thy womb. The word conceive is an interesting word because we think of the word conceive where conception is concerned and obviously that's what he's talking about here in the reproductive process. But this word conceive means to clasp. Other alternate words are to seize or to arrest or to capture. Now, that's not what I thought the word conceive would have meant there. But literally, what it's saying is, you shall take hold and a son shall be born. Now, what I want you to see, folks, is simply this the Word of God. You remember how the Bible says that Jesus was the Word made flesh? The Word of God altered her physiology. Well, if the Word of God altered her physiology, the Word of God that never changes and never loses power can alter yours too. See, some people reject the virgin birth because they're thinking just from a physiological or a biological standpoint. You've got ministers and doctors of, of divinity and people with degrees and all kinds of stuff. They'll say the virgin birth didn't happen. Well, yeah, it did happen. Of course it happened. Why do they say that it didn't happen? We've got the Bible that says it did. What evidence do they have that it doesn't or didn't? Well, the only thing they go by is their thinking or their understanding about physiology. But folks, you need to understand the Word of God will change your body. That means whatever physiological changes need to occur in your body, all you've got to do is find the Word for it and conceive within your spirit the same way that she did it's an amazing thing to me how, that in this uh, example specifically, how that the Bible identifies clearly how that the... the uh, I don't know how to say this. How that the, the difference, the, ch- the change, the transfer between the spirit realm and the physical realm was made. I want you to understand that it's impossible for Mary to have given birth or for anyone to have given birth without a physical sperm making contact with an egg. And the Word of God produced that. The Word of God, which is spirit and life, created a physical thing, a specific physical thing that enabled Mary to get pregnant and have a child. The Word of God is creative. If it's creative for her, it can be creative for you and me. Amen. Now I want you to see something else about this. Let's back up a little bit in Luke chapter 1. You remember that the angel says to encourage Mary, your cousin Elizabeth is six months along and she's too old to have a child. So God did something there. Let's back up a little bit in Luke chapter 1 and see the story of this. It tells us in the early verses about how that Zechariah and Elizabeth was... uh, They had no child. Elizabeth was barren, and they were both old and stricken in years. And there appeared an angel to Zechariah when he was in the temple or sanctuary and uh, taking care of things and so forth. And um, let's start reading in verse 13. It says, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard. So he's prayed. Thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John. Now here is a question I've got for you, and I don't have an answer for it. It's just something for you to consider. Does this mean that he's continuing to pray for a son even though he's too old? Or does this mean his prayers from before were heard when he thought it was still possible? I don't know. The word prayer here is the word supplication, which means to take hold through extended effort a promise of God, to lay hold on the promise of God through continual prayer so if this means that he's continuing to pray that would indicate to me that he would still have some kind of hope but his actions indicate otherwise so it's something to think about if this means prayers in the past which i'm inclined to think that it does even though we think something might be too late god doesn't and it could be it's also possible possible i'm not saying it has to be this way but it's also possible that the prayers that we prayed in years past and have given up on are still in the ears of God. If we haven't counteracted them, if we haven't undone them with our words or our actions. So he said, Your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great. This is John the Baptist, by the way. She shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah answered. Now Zechariah is a priest; he's not the high priest, but he's one of the priests that attend to the things of the sanctuary. And Zechariah said unto the angel. Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well stricken in years. And the angel answered and said unto him. Literally, Zechariah is saying, What kind of sign am I going to get? Did Mary ask for a sign? She simply asked how. Zechariah is saying, What sign will you give me so that I know? Notice the difference in Mary and Zechariah. Mary says, Behold, look at him. Behold the handmaiden of the the Lord. I'm your girl. Be it unto me according to your word. Zacharias is saying, What, in addition to what you're saying, are you going to give me? And the angel answered and said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. In other words, you don't know who you're talking to, bud. My word is good enough, but since you asked, verse 20, and behold, look at him, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak. I doubt if that's the sign that Zechariah was looking for. (laughs) Thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. Now, we know the end of the story. The end of the story is Zechariah spends nine months not being able to talk. The next words that he speaks is when he agrees to name his son John after he's born. Everybody else, is, is, since he's not able to say anything, everybody else in the family is saying, well, you don't have any Johns in your family. We can't name him John. Uh, I guess it was something more than just up to the parents in those days. Everybody seemed to think they had to say so. And finally, Zechariah steps in and writes down his name is John, and when he does that, he can speak. And so the only way that anybody would know about this story is after the fact where, John, where Zacharias excuse me, relates it to everybody and what the angel said and how this all happened. Because nobody's with him when he goes dumb. Uh, dumb meaning unable to speak. I think he was dumb for not listening to the angel. <laughs> but you know what I mean. So we would only know this story after the fact. So here's Zacharias who asked the angel, what kind of sign are you going to give me? Your word's not enough. I need something else. And notice, since God always has to have man's agreement to do even that which was prophesied, John the Baptist has been prophesied for hundreds of years too. In order for God to bring forth the prophecy, the word that can never fail, he's got to have man's agreement. So what does he have to do with Zacharias in order to keep this thing moving on track he's already prayed he can use the prayers of the past to answer his prayer for a son even though physiologically biologically they're unable but what has he got to do to keep him on track he's got to shut this guy up if he doesn't shut it up shut him up it's going to mess things all up if he doesn't shut zacharias's mouth He can undo what God has prophesied for hundreds of years. You think man doesn't have authority on the earth? Absolutely he does. Why didn't the angel, if if God works sovereignly like so much of the church world seems to think, then why didn't God say, I don't care what you think about it, it's going to happen this way whether you want it or not. But he doesn't. And in order, I don't want to build a doctrine off of any one single experience, but you could make a case for saying that the will of God, the promise of God, the Word of God will come, pass, come to pass on your behalf if you'll just keep your mouth shut. I know a lot of people that would be a whole lot better off to stay quiet until their deal is done. Notice the difference between Zacharias and Mary. Angel shows up. Angel says the same thing in both cases. Look at him. Here's the truth. May not fit with your thinking. May not fit with the way you thought things were going to be. May not even fit with what you think is possible. But look at him. Zacharias says, okay, that sounds great. What kind of sign can I get? Mary just simply says, Now, wait a minute, how? When she hears how, then she says to the angel, Look at him. I'm your girl. Be it unto me according to your word. Be it unto me according to your word. There's a verse of Scripture. Let me pull it up so I don't misquote it. There's a verse of Scripture in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles, chapter 16. I believe it's... uh, Sorry, hit the wrong button. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, I believe. Yeah. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Can I paraphrase that based on Mary's experience and what the Bible tells us? The eyes of the Lord search through the earth looking for who will say, Look at him. Searching for the one that will say, I'm your guy. That's me. Now, if we take Mary's experience and put it into our own uh, situation that we can relate to, Mary says, okay, clearly she can't understand how everything's going to work. I mean, just having the explanation of the Holy Spirit shall overshadow thee like a cloud, does that really explain anything to anybody? I mean, if I was Mary... I don't want to be crude here, but I'd want details. Okay, when? Tonight? Do I have to do anything to get ready? What are we looking for here? I'd want to know some details. I'm sure she wanted to know some details too. Everybody would. But she simply accepted accepted what the angel said, the explanation that the angel said, and declared herself a candidate for whatever God had for her, Because she trusted in Him. If we choose to use that same principle, which worked for her, I don't know why we wouldn't choose the same principle. If we choose to do the same thing, you can take any and every promise of God and apply it to yourself. You can say, that's me. One thing that's interesting is that... um, in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and El- Adam and Eve fell in the garden of Eden one of the curses or one of the parts of the the discourse that God has with both Adam, Eve and the serpent is he says to Eve and the serpent he says to them the seed of the woman shall bruise your head you'll bruise his heel but he'll bru- bruise your head now the word bruise there If I remember correctly, there are two different words that are used there. One means he'll destroy you. He'll stomp on your head. The other means you'll give him a bruise. You may bruise his heel, but he'll do much more damage to your head. In other words, the seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. It's interesting to me how that when it comes to Mary, the seed of the woman giving birth, he doesn't talk to Joseph. He talks to Joseph later and says, Look, this is of me. Don't put her away. But he talks to Mary individually. But when it came to somebody else in their old age having children, like Abraham and like Zacharias that we just saw here with Elizabeth, giving birth to John the Baptist after they were old, beyond childbearing years. When it came to them, he talked to the men. Why? Because the men are the heads of those houses. Mary and the situation with her bypasses what any man has to say about it. Because it's between God and her. Simply between God and her. And as a result, she has a right, she has the authority to choose whether or not she's going to apply that prophecy from thousands of years before to be her. Isaiah's prophecy from 750 years before. She has a right to choose whether or not she's going to apply that to herself. Folks, you've been prophesied about from the beginning of the Bible. And what the Bible says that you and I will have and will do in Christ and through Him, through the place that He made for us because He went to the Father, you have the same right, the same opportunity to apply that to yourself if you will. Mary did that by saying, look at Him. I'm your girl. Be it unto me according to your word. You have the right to do the same thing when it comes to healing, when it comes to material blessings. Those are all blessings that belong to you. Because you're in Christ, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed? And heirs according to the promise. I think one of the most important words in our vocabulary, and I don't suggest you do this publicly, but one of the most important words or sayings in our vocabulary when our relationship with God is concerned should be, look at Him. I'm your guy. I'm your girl. Be it unto me according to your word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. We thank You, Father, for the privilege to exercise our authority to make Your Word real in our lives. Father, I thank You that just as the Word was made flesh in Mary so that she conceived and brought forth Jesus, so so too the Word of God can be made flesh to bring healing for our bodies to make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. New creations, a whole new species of being in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that this Christmas season would be a time that we recognize the life. The life that's in us. The life of God that's in us. And not just presents. Not just family. Not just fun and good times and good things. We thank you for those things too, Father. But that we realize that the most important thing that we have is our names written down in heaven. The life of God from within us. And Lord, I pray that you would do something in the hearts of each person that lives on this earth to cause them not to look at just Jesus as a baby in a manger, but Jesus as the risen Son of God. That we'd celebrate his life, not just his birth, but his life and that which he accomplished through laying down that life for our sakes. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. We give you thanks, Father, for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your word. Even as the word says, even as you said, forever your word is settled in heaven. When we claim it for ourselves, when we say, behold us, be it unto us according to your word, we're saying it's settled for us. And as your word says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Father, I pray that this Christmas season and this coming new year would be a different time for us spiritually it would be a time where we would jump forward leap forward spiritually that we would grow in leaps and bounds in the knowledge of you we would step over into the authority that belongs to us because jesus went to the father lord we bless you we magnify your name we thank you that the rain is falling upon the earth We thank you that the rain of God is falling upon this church. That it produces signs and wonders and miracles. That it brings immediate results to our faith. And it fills our church with people that are hungry for God and his word. Thank you, Father, for the rain. Thank you that the glory of God is seen upon your people worldwide. Including us, Father. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for all that you're doing. Things that we're believing you for. Things that are crossing the barrier between the spirit realm and the physical realm. By faith. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Amen.